1: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Stonefeld.
2: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
1: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly whenever your case is on hold.
2: Welcome back to your, The Price is Right just kidding, it's another, your case is on hold, episode number 38. I am Antonia Chen, I am Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction, and you are?
1: I am uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods School at Astoria
2: Park. <laughs> and I think when it comes to the prices right, we're going to bid $1 across the board, because it's just the safest bet to go. If you're yes, playing it safe now.
1: The actual reimbursement for a total joint knee replacement. <laughs>
2: In the year 2050, according to the articles at hand. So without further ado, as you can tell, these opinions are our own. They don't reflect JBJS boards, editor, JBJS editorial staff, or the JBJS other editors as well. This is sponsored by JBJS Clinical Classrooms. And don't forget to check out your JBJS swag. Without further ado, we're going to go to top of the pile. The Parity Trial, a sea change in musculoskeletal oncology research by our editor-in-chief, Dr. Mark Sontowski. What's new in musculoskeletal infection by Otero et al., this is permanently free. Another, what's important, surgery and aging orthopedic surgeon by Zuckerman, which is also permanently free. What's important, astronomy and leisure by Fisher, which is also permanently free. This sounds like it's something that's completely up your wheelhouse when it comes to astronomy. Um, What's your sign?
1: Uh, I'm a Gemini. Gemini, of course. course. Chinese zodiac
2: oh nice and I am a cancer so I'm a crab but I'm actually a chicken or a rooster but I'm not a rooster so I'm a hen so I'm a hen
1: it's a surf and turf thing
2: yeah it's kind of a good mix I guess (laughs) if you're in the mood for uh, a little Boston and a little bit a mix of the Midwest I like it Mm -hmm. management of high energy tibial pilon fractures by Murawski et al and without further ado the headlines
1: uh, mine is uh, maternal risk factors for congenital vertebral anatomy is a population-based study by Raatihu and colleagues. This study was done uh, in Finland, uh, and as we've discussed previously, this type of investigation is really only possible in an in integrated, nationalized healthcare system where they can obtain data and survey across generations, looking at you know universal factors, collecting universal data both from a clinical and social demographic, et cetera. So really only in rare circumstances can you get work like this, which is why what, what makes this so interesting and exciting. It's a nationwide register-based study. It's a case control study looking at vertebral anomalies from identified in live births, stillbirths, and terminations for fetal anomaly using the Finnish register of congenital malformations over the course of two decades from the late 90s to 2016. They looked at five matched controls for each case uh, using same geographic region, and then they analyzed a number of maternal risk factors, age, body mass index, parity, smoking, history of miscarriage, chronic disease, and prescription drugs dispensed during first trimester. The methodology is incredibly sound, really well done from a methodology standpoint. They do have 256 cases diagnosed with congenital vertebral anomalies and compared to 950 match controls, they identify a number of important risk factors, pregestational diabetes, diabetes, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, exposure to estrogens, heparins, all had uh, elevated risk of, of quite sizable magnitudes, ranging rather from uh, 5.3 to 22.91 for rheumatoid arthritis in terms of the elevated odds of congenital anomalies. They do have a secondary sensitivity analysis where they did some imputation. And and then this did show that maternal smoking was also significantly associated. However, they have to do some fun with numbers there. And then even after that, there's only a 57% increase in odds as compared to all the other factors in the main analysis that had multiple, you know, sometimes even orders of magnitude elevation in risk. And then when you look at the confidence interval for maternal smoking, it's uh, 1.05 is the lower bound, so really bordering on the null. I'm not sure that you can really invest in the maternal smoking piece. The, the other things uh, definitely seem to have very high signal. That said, while it does seem like a fairly large sample, when you get into these types of details, the sample is not actually that large. And And they have a lot of very imprecise measures when you look at the confidence intervals. For example, rheumatoid arthritis has an odds ratio of basically 23, but the 95% confidence interval runs from 2.7 to 196.4. So, you know, super imprecise that way. It can be, you know, kind of like a doubling of the risk to, you know, 196 times the, the, the risk. Both pregestational diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis do seem to be important factors. This is hypothesis generating, it's exploratory, it's readily testable. These these definitely seem to lend themselves to to test questions, I think. Um, That said, they're not necessarily translatable across populations. These types of studies, and this one in particular, are done in places such as Finland, where the population tends to be more homogenous. There are known genetic predispositions for these types of congenital vertebral defects. There may be a two-hit sort of phenomena with some of these other exposures um, and clinical characteristics. And what's found for the population in Finland may not be translatable to Sub-Saharan Africa, to the Middle East, to the Asia Pacific, to South America, or or even in the US where we have a much more heterogeneous population, whereas in Finland, it's very homogenous. I, I enjoyed this one. I, I think it's great. Everyone should check it out, even if you're not a peds ortho or interested in congenital vertebral anomalies. Uh, and again, you know, really well done from, from a methods angle and study that can't be uh, just easily replicated, given the parameters of the data source that they're using.
2: I've got another good article coming your way. The effects of, sorry, the effects of sociodemographic factors on baseline patient-reported outcome measures in patients with foot and ankle conditions Boy, by the all-star team by Boyaki et al. with a commentary on it, so you don't have to take my word for it, and it's also free for 30 days. In the past, the outcomes of surgical procedures was simply measured by factors that really mattered to us as surgeons, so things like complications, reoperations, and when we still look at those factors, over time we realize it's really important to get the patient's voice. So we want to measure patient-reported outcomes, and we want to improve our patient-reported outcomes in our procedures. So these authors looked at foot and ankle conditions, so they looked over a wide variety of procedures, and they really wanted to look at the effect of social demographic factors on patient-reported outcomes. And the idea is to mitigate disparities throughout the episode of care. And this study evaluated which patient factors could impact patient-reported outcomes in these foot and ankle patients. And they looked at factors that are commonly looked at in studies, but not always together. They did a pretty comprehensive look of demographic factors, including age, sex, primary language, education level, household income, and comorbidities. And looked at data between June 2016 and November 2021 and collected um, Promise Global Physical Score and then Promise Global Mental Scores in over 23,000 patients. That's a huge number of new patients. They specified new patients because they didn't want repeat problems to be looked at, but they wanted to look at new patients specifically. They found that the patients in this study tended to be older, or included more female patients, uh, were educated and wealthier, and had fewer Black, Hispanic, Asian, and non English speaking patients. And this may be due to the demographics of the location of where these hospitals were. That said, they looked at age, sex, zip code, self-reported race and ethnicity, primary language spoken, education level, and trust and comorbidity index. And they separated those into different areas too. So education level was below high school or high school and below and then college and above. Um, comorbidity index were at no comorbidities, mild to moderate. So they grouped one to four together and in severe they defined as greater than five. And then they used the U.S. Census Bureau American Community Survey data to get the mean household income based on zip code, so not the actual household income, which is a standard way of looking at mean household income. And they said the lowest quartile was less than $78,415, and the highest quartile was greater than $120,613. And they also looked at one half standard deviation method for minimally clinically important differences in patient-reported outcomes. And really came down to um, black, white, and Hispanic, which are the biggest buckets of uh, racial groups. And they found that black versus white patients, so black had lower problems and Hispanic versus non-Hispanic patients, Hispanic patients had lower patient report outcomes without any adjustments just across the board. The patients who had lowest problems were non-English speaking, had the lowest income, had a higher high school education or less, and comorbidities and high comorbidities. Um, variable regression helped to control for variables and reduced proms means differences between race. So they did kind of like a stepwise reduction to see what would get, what they would get in terms of improvement in proms or less disparity in proms when adjusted. So they adjusted for education level, language, and median household income and a reduced ethnic disparity by 67% and 65% looking at, you know, black and white versus Hispanic and non Hispanic. And then if you included age, sex, and primary language, it didn't actually substantially change the mean racial disparity. And then education level of high school or less and severe uh, Charleston comorbidity index had the largest negative effects on scores, but race and ethnicity had less impact. So education level and severe severity of comorbidities. So the take-home message is what can we do to help patients to try to give them a better experience, especially in foot and ankle? So the hard part is that you can't necessarily give them higher education, right? There's a bunch of socioeconomic factors that might be beneficial if you do have higher education, and that's something, mm-hmm. if something it could improve or uh, affect patients. But the idea of improving education from a healthcare standpoint might be really beneficial, right? So you may not be able to increase their high school level of training, but if you really change the way that we improve our education system of delivering health literacy and of, you know, making health literacy attainable or um, being able to acknowledge by people. So, you know, they say we should write at eighth grade level, but that's not always the case when it comes to our health literature or that's given to patients. They may not be able to comprehend it. Putting it in different languages might be helpful for our patients um, because our patient report outcomes are not being done in different languages, Um, being able to provide information in different languages, and potentially by improving education early on, you can mitigate the amount of comorbidities that a patient has at the time of uh, treatment, so they can do better potentially. But, you know, what can we also do? Can we, you know, improve access for patients? Can we improve transportation for patients so that we can mitigate these um, patient report outcomes being so desperate? Uh, So so there's a wide gap between different uh, racial and ethnic groups.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a a very interesting study, uh, highlights a number of important uh, parameters, it is cross-sectional, of course. There are likely, you know, restricted numbers in some respects, particularly around you know socio the the underrepresented sociodemographic groups in whichever way you're looking at that, educational, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and then the intersections of those because this is all coming from one health system in one particular area that's it is academic. Um, so these findings aren't necessarily translational. Certainly not beyond you know the specific foot and ankle context in which it's being conducted, um, but very you know interesting work, uh, definite food for thought, and and uh, nothing to put on hold, and and um, yeah, definitely worth checking out.
2: On the other hand, the next study we're going to look at is looking at unilateral versus bilateral tourniquetoplasty. So the study here is completion and safety of simultaneous bilateral tourniquetoplasty at patient characteristic characteristic and comorbidity
1: and comorbidity matched analysis. If that's
2: we not <laughs> We're definitely looking at patient characteristics here to make it very specific, right? Well, remind
1: you know, when you're in the checkout aisle at the supermarket, like choir headlines, or in the UK, Tattler. That's such a great title for, for, for like a, I'm going to have, I'm going to start a new journal, Orthopedic
2: Tattler. It'd be like the onion for orthopedics. I think we have a great idea going on here. Orthopedic
1: Tatler brought to you by JBJS.
2: I'm not sure David would want to sponsor that, but that's <laughs> we could do it separate of it. I call <laughs> it the Journal of Anecdotal Medicine. That's what we could potentially put there. So You have a lot of that. We
1: have a lot of authors at the Brigham in the Journal of Anecdotal Medicine.
2: <laughs> in my experience. Yes. <laughs> simultaneous versus bilateral and total neartoplasty, in my experience, might be different than this article, but we're talking about this article now by Richardson et al. It is the age-old debate, do both knees at once, or do you do them one at a time in a staggered manner? And the study goal here, they said specifically, they wanted to use statistical matching techniques to address pre-existing differences between bilateral and unilateral total knee arthroplasty cohorts and obtain statistical power, sorry, adequate statistical power to detect differences in rare complications such as periproscetic joint infection, venous thromboembolism, and in-hospital death. So they used the Premier Health Database looking at unilateral simultaneous bilateral primary elective total knee arthroplasties, which has been done in a lot of different types of studies. This was conducted between 2015 to 2020, and they were randomly divided into five subcohorts per procedure because there were too many patients apparently to put into one large cohort for the matching. And so the simultaneous bilateral total knee patients were exact match without replacement to those who underwent unilateral total knee arthroplasty in a one to six ratio. They were matched by age, sex, race, and all of these comorbidities, acute kidney injury, acute blood loss, anemia, congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, mellitus, hypertension, obesity, peripheral v- vascular disease, pulmonary circulation disorders, history of fe- venous thromboembolism, and history of stroke. That is your Tatler big headline article for patient characteristics.
1: All right, but, but here. here, just for one second, just pause for one second here, because- all right, we're talking about matching on these characteristics. The characteristics that make you decide whether or not you're going to do a unilateral versus bilateral. Absolutely, they definitely make an impact. These are all of them. This is everything that you consider if you do unilateral. Bilateral.
2: So this is not everything. There's a little bit more that I would add. Right? I would say history of uh, myocardial infarction, for example, congestive heart failure. So anything cardiac, I think, is something that'd be more impactful for how I would affect uh, choose patients. Actually, they have congestive heart failure already there, so. MI is probably one of the few things I could add to this, but these are all really bad things that would probably keep me from undergoing a bilateral any surgery. Treatment. Any, any. <laughs> <laughs> they're, not any, gonna, any. <laughs> they're not going to have a surgery. The case will be on hold. It won't be anesthesia spot this time. It will be the patient's coronavirus. Like this, this is true. This <laughs> is true. That's a lot of patient characteristics. So that said, by matching all those, they still actually had 21,000 patients or over 21,000 patients who underwent simultaneous bilateral arthroplasty, and they matched that to 126,264 match patients. So not surprisingly, like simultaneous bilateral arthroplasty were actually younger male and Caucasian, and before matching had lower comorbidities for a bunch of different conditions, such as the ones they listed already, which include acute kidney injury. Congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, hypertension, a history of embolism, and stroke. So those weren't likely to get those surgeries anyway. After matching, the bilateral total knee arthroplasty cohort still wasn't similar, but had different differences and similarities. So they had lower rates of depression, liver disease, psychosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and higher rates of fluid imbalance, chronic peptid ulcer disease, and abnormal weight loss. These patients who had bilateral total knees understandably also had longer length of stay. So when patients were undergoing total in a bilateral format, after doing all this matching, they had higher risk of pulmonary embolism, stroke, acute blood loss, anemia, and transfusion. They also had an increased risk of respiratory failure, but once confounders were adjusted for, that disappeared. They were at increased risk of 90-day readmission as well, and but no difference in in-hospital mortality, but they couldn't evaluate 30, 60, 90-day, one-year mortality, which is kind of where the mortalities really appear, right? The risk of heart attacks and things like that happen, you know, at least one to two to maybe three days after surgery. So they may not capture the mortality well in this study. They only looked at in-hospital mortality. So, you know, the biggest thing with this study, any sort of database study is you don't know the criteria for when someone decides to go one versus, sorry, stage versus simultaneous bilateral tortuony arthroplasties. And you know a patient might have gotten staged bilateral arthroplasties a week apart, and that wouldn't come out as well here too. And that also still has a high risk of that. Or it could be a few days apart. So those are the patients that you can't really assess. But looking at this study, they're saying there's still more complications for bilateral tourniquet arthroplasty. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone who's listening.
1: So you know there are different ways even to do simultaneous bilateral. You can do it single surgeon in a stepwise fashion, or you could do it two teams.
2: Right. Right. Um you definitely can and and you can do it you know robotically or navigation or without that, and that you know changes your thromboembolism risk. There's a bunch of things that can do it you know under different types of anaesthesia, like all those no things affect your risk
1: in this in this invest two surgical at the same time, so your case done in about the same time that you would get one case done in a randomized controlled trial setting where you're going to randomize an individual who's a candidate for bilingual knees to simultaneous same day, whatever you want to call it, to some type of sequential interrupted, however you want to interrupt it, that's the ideal. And if we're trying to emulate that in this context, this study does not do that. It does not replicate the situation where there would be clinical equipoise, the very fact that after they did their matching, they want you to ignore it. They want you to ignore the man behind the green curtain to go back to the Wizard of Oz. You know, they're like, don't pay attention to the liver stuff and the depression stuff. But in Trial, all that stuff should just bear itself out. Yes, yeah, the points that they raise are somewhat valid, but they're even their baseline approach. This, this, um, you know, it's this is study. It's it's a characteristic and comorbidity matched analysis. That's not a study design. It's just a matched study. So the other stuff is is narrative. If you did a well robust, well adjusted propensity or some type of causal inference study. You have to show that these are the parameters that are really driving, I think that many of these parameters, as I said before, drive the decision about what, are you even a candidate for total joint, let alone bilateral simultaneous total joint. And so that's the part that to me, I agree with the conclusion. I agree with the conclusion. I just don't think that the study is providing a methodologically robust framework and foundation for the conclusion.
2: Agreed. Yeah, the way that to do is to do a prospective randomized trial. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I had that, to put that, you that, in, there. <laughs> you to get that in there. To yes. Right. More this work. The we should do a prospective randomized study. That's that's actually the one time we should do it for sure. So, going on to honorable mentions: conservative management with functional brace versus various surgical fixation techniques for humeral shaft fractures. A network meta-analysis by Zavaris et al. This compared uh, functional bracing uh, versus surgical fixation and found that compared to functional bracing, most operative interventions had lower rates of reoperation, minimally invasive plate osteosynthesis, had significant faster time to union while limiting periosteal stripping while open reduction internal fixation, had significantly higher rates of radial nerve palsy. Non-operative management with functional bracing had higher non-union rates than most surgical technique and often required conversion to surgical fixation. The next one was a functional and clinical outcomes after plate osteosynthesis versus intermeduline nailing of a humeral shaft fracture, the results of the Hummer Multicenter Prospective Cohort Study, an international study by Dan Hartog, and there's an infographic and this is also permanently free. This study found that plating of a humeral shaft fracture in adults had faster recovery, especially when it came to evaluating shoulder function. Plating was associated with more temporary nerve palsies, but fewer implant-related complications and surgical reinterventions than nailing. Despite the heterogeneity in implants and surgical approaches, plating was actually the preferred treatment of these humeral shaft fractures, according to the authors on their uh, prospective cohort study. Looking at nerve injury again, the risk of nerve injury in pediatric forearm fractures by Zilakis. et al., there's a visual summary for this one as well. Nerve injury following a pediatric forearm fracture is very rare. They reported 0.7% and has an excellent potential for spontaneous recovery. In their study, only 0.04% were permanent. In the present study, all the permanent nerve injuries occurred in association with open fractures or as a complication of internal fixation. And finally, association between transemic acid use and heterotopic ossification prevalence after elbow trauma surgery, a propensity score-matched cohort study. By Liu et al., it's been known that tranexamic acid can reduce the inflammatory response after orthopedic surgery. After elbow trauma, the study had two hundred forty patients who did and two hundred forty-one patients who did not receive tranexamic acid who sustained an elbow fracture. This was performed in China, where there are a lot of elbow injuries, or elbow trauma surgery being performed. They did match them by a lot of different factors. So, they matched by age, sex, dominant arm, injury type, open injury, commutative fracture, ipsilateral trauma, time from injury to surgery, and non steroidal anti inflammatory drug use. And the study found that transoxymic acid prophylaxis may be an appropriate method for the prevention of heterotopic ossification following elbow trauma. There you've had it. Like what you want
1: to get more. This was the 38th episode of Your Cases on Hold. There are 37 previous revisions of this head to head dynamic, gripping insights, entertainment. Uh, You can't ask for more. Check them all out. Be sure to subscribe. If you like what you heard, make sure you have two weeks. If you didn't, thanks for listening. Till
2: next time.
1: Hopefully come back. (laughs) Yeah. We look forward to seeing you back when your case is on hold again. Uh, We're always, uh, we all, all our cases are on hold down here. Welcome to the bad
0: Thanks all.